never our intention to try to catch every birthday, uh, mainly because so many of you don't want your birthdays mentioned. Uh, but uh, Ethan and Isaac are tomorrow. Isaac's not here, so he, he bailed on his birthday. No, he has to see, they're just traveling. Uh, and then uh, well, I looked at Kiana, and she was hoping I would forget. Kiana's birthday's on Tuesday. This is a busy week. I mean, Cole, Ethan, Isaac, Kiana, and probably others of you that also don't want, like Elisha I'm getting pointed to. When's that? 27, man, this is like Risen King birthday week. If you could move your birthdays, we could just all center. And then Jeremy, man, thank you, Mary. Wow, this is crazy. I'm so surprised you didn't mention that uh, yourself, announcer-wise. He's like, stop talking and preach the word. That's a good idea. I think I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, it's birthday, birthday week Sunday. That's what it's, we don't have cake. Anyway. You're all gluten-free anyway. It's not, this, gotta get to the, gotta get, we gotta stop, gotta stop. <clears throat> if you've ever watched any videos on the internet, and you've probably seen fail videos, it's amazing how many people end up falling off their skateboards or walking into doors or doing something else that almost looked really cool, but ended up looking really stupid. And it's also amazing how many of these things are caught on camera and then shared with the world. Uh, during our e elder and deacon training session last month, I was demonstrating faith with the chair illustration. I've used that a few times. I think many of you are familiar with that. Uh, the point of the illustration is that you can say you're trusting the chair. It was a stool in this instance, but in a sense, you're not really demonstrating you trust the chair until you actually sit on it. And I wanted to demonstrate this fervently. So I sat down on this stool with full conviction and I'll be honest, how many of you are hoping, like all of them, that I fell and that there was video evidence? Don't raise your hand. Well, by God's grace, I didn't fall. God's grace keeps us from falling. Failure. Right? Interesting, interesting word. Brings up a lot of in, uh, visions, different uh, images in our mind. If I put before you two options, success or failure, which would you choose? Success, of course. No one wants to fail. Everyone wants to succeed. Well, in our culture, success in our tasks has been overinflated, overvalued. Our identity can too often be found in our vocation, whatever that vocation may be, whether you go somewhere outside of your home for vocation, whether you stay in your home for vocation, a calling. Our identity can be found in that. This is what, this is who I am. And then we idolize success as workers or as parents, even as pastors. See, elders or pastors, two terms, same office, in case you missed that sermon. Elders or pastors are normal human beings with the same desire to succeed in their responsibilities and not fail. And we are also susceptible to the same idolatries of worshiping success and finding our identity or our spiritual value in that ministry role, rather than in our identity of a righteous adopted relationship with God. Yet how can one read a book like 1 Timothy and come away thinking that there is no sense in which an elder can succeed or fail in his ministry, as if the task and responsibility that they have been called to doesn't matter? We can't walk away from this letter or any part of the New Testament thinking that. Well, we're in desperate need of a definition here of, of success that's not just task-based, right? Identity-based. So what is success 
in elder or pastoral ministry, which is valuable because as we've mentioned a number of different times, like with qualifications, it's not like, oh, I can check out. I'm not an elder. I'm not aspiring to be an elder. I'm not qualified to be an elder. So it doesn't matter. Chapter three and what it says about character, that's not for me. Same with the deacon texts or or last week and training in godliness. So what what elders are called to in a sense, then spreads to all of God's people. So what is success in elder ministry and pastoral ministry? What is success uh, in the Christian life? Success is faithfulness. Faithfulness to what Christ, by his word, has called an elder to do among the people that Christ has given him to lead during the time period he has ordained for him to do it. Well, that was, that was a lot. What is success? Success is faithfully shepherding whoever, wherever, whenever the Lord has called a particular person to serve, whether elder or parent or worker or friend, right? Wherever the Lord has placed you, whenever, for, for how long, right? His planned, ordained duration to do that faithfully according to his word. First Timothy chapter four, verses 11 through 16 this morning. You know, he keeps saying things like these things. So we could start at chapter one and work our way through sequentially, and our readings each morning could get longer and longer. Uh, maybe at some point we'll, we'll catch ourselves back up. But he's referring to everything that's kind of come before and centering in on these imperatives that he's laid before Timothy. But as we look at chapter four, verses 11 through 16, I think as this slide says, we could focus our attention on evaluating an elder's faithfulness. And again, as you say elder, that's what we're going to focus on because that's kind of the way that Timothy was serving and that's the point of this letter, but it's not a a far jump for us to take that and for you to say like, well, okay, how do I evaluate my own faithfulness? I mean, I'm not an elder, I'm not a pastor, but I am a, a husband or wife or father or mother. I'm a child, I'm a worker, I'm a neighbor. In all of those different ways, I'm a member. How am I being faithful? 1 Timothy chapter 4, I'll read verses 11 through 16. Paul says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by, the, by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Evaluating an elder's faithfulness, I think, starts off by uh, evaluating faithfulness by his responsibilities. This, I think, starts in verse 11. What are the responsibilities that an elder has? Well, verse 11, command and teach these things. And I think these instructions are very similar to what we said is uh, sort of the umbrella explanation of the office of elder in chapter 2, where Paul says uh, that they are to be teaching and exercising authority. And yeah, that was in a context of those who are not uh, permitted to be elders. They're not permitted to teach, to exercise authority. Why? Because that's what elders are called to do. So kind of by its negative, he's establishing the positive. Elders don't lead or rule or command. 
so that their will is done, but so that Christ's will is done. Leadership, as we said in those sermons, does not speak of privilege. You're all here for me because I'm one of the elders here. No, it's not a privilege in what I can get out of it. Leadership has to do, in really any capacity, and certainly in the church, leadership is speaking of responsibility, uh, shouldering the weight of what's going on, and accountability to Christ for what will take place. As Paul said to Timothy in verse 6 of chapter 4, if you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Writing to a leader and reminding him, as Christ himself said, if you're going to lead, you need to serve. You want to be first. You need to put yourself last. If I, your master and teacher, and it's right for you to call me that, Jesus said, if I would serve and wash your feet, of course, you must also wash one another's feet. All believers, including and maybe especially elders, are servants of Christ, acting under his authority delegated to them. But his authority to command his people according to his word, command and teach his people according to his word, has been delegated to elders of local churches. If they don't have authority to command, if they're not supposed to be followed as they are faithfully leading according to God's word, what's the point of a passage like Hebrews 13, verse 17, where God's people in a local church like ours are commanded, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. An elder's faithfulness can be evaluated by whether or not he teaches Christ's word to Christ's people. Is he commanding and teaching or isn't he? Is he only making recommendations or giving advice? Here are six points to your best marriage now. Or is he commanding God's truth with God's authority? This is what God's word says. Do, do, you need to repent. You need to believe not because I say so on my own authority, but because I stand on God's, with God's authority delegated to me to say this is what the Lord says in his word. Not what Peter wants, what Christ has commanded. You see that elders' faithfulness with his responsibilities in verse 14, where Paul says specifically to Timothy that we can draw from that. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the councils of, council of elders laid their hands on you. See, the Holy Spirit gifts all believers with what are often referred to as spiritual gifts. I think those can be divided into two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. As we see uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, not me, uh, writing about in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says this. I think it's a helpful passage to look at thinking about spiritual gifts. And he writes, as each has, re each has received a gift, each believer has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Speaking gifts, serving gifts. What's the goal? In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You have been gifted by Christ at salvation, by the Holy Spirit, gifts that need to be developed over time, but, but the Holy Spirit working through you for the good, not of you, not for your advancement, but for the good of his body, to the glory of God, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. 
if every believer has a spiritual gift, well, how much more is that true that elders have a spiritual gift? Because elders have to be believers. Elders that are called to lead Christ's church and equip the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. See, elders have been called by Christ and gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve the body by leading the body. Though it can be difficult or frustrating, even discouraging at times, their gifts and calling to eldership must not be neglected or set on the shelf. Paul said this to Timothy, do not neglect the gift that you have. And that calls, that calls given to elders, of course, that also falls on the rest of the body. The Holy Spirit has p- equipped you and placed you here in Risen King, like in this seat today as a follower of Jesus Christ, equipped you that through his strength, you can serve this body in a way that nobody else can, as powered by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. You cannot neglect that. And the gifts that Fred, Jeremy, myself, Lowell, that we have been gifted with, it is a a sin against God for us to set that on the shelf and not use the gifts that he's given us in our calling to lead his church. Without viewing it mystically, superstitiously, there's no like power transfer, our hands aren't going to like shake and lightning bolts come out when we talk about the laying on of hands. Without viewing it in some kind of mystical, superstitious way, we must recognize the spiritual significance of a man having been trained and evaluated, demonstrating that he's qualified, being ordained by the elders and set aside for service with them in that office, right? We can swing too far and be like, ooh, is the fog going to descend? And be like, oh, that's not going to happen. We can also just be like, okay, well, it says lay hands on, so I don't know. Nothing's happening here. We've got to have some sort of a middle ground here. Something is happening. The laying on of hands by the council of elders is when this takes place, that they, having been trained and evaluated for those qualifications and for the desire and gifting of the office, when we will lay our hands on them, saying, yes, Christ through his body and through his word is calling you to join us in serving by leading. Do not neglect your gift. We're moving toward completing our elder and deacon training and evaluation period. And as we do that, we elders will put before you as the members of Risen King Church, each of those men, their names have been in front of you for months, each of the men that have completed or passed their training and evaluation for you to vote on, they'll happen in the last two weeks of June. Those that are affirmed by both the elders and the members will then be ordained to that office, and we're planning for that ordination service to take place at our July 4th gathering. So let me mark that down. I hope that you're able to to join us. These men, having been then set aside, will share the responsibility and accountability which Jeremy and Fred and Lowell and I now bear before Christ and you, bearing the responsibility not to neglect our gifts for the service of Christ and his body. We're evaluating an elder's faithfulness by his responsibilities, commanding and teaching. Are they, are they using their gifts for the good of the body? And then verse 16, he gets into this as well. Keep a close watch on, he says, the teaching. I've spoken a few times on the difference between sound and healthy doctrine and unsound 
doctrine, between true teaching and deceitful, demonic, damning, false teaching. The importance of this cannot be overstated. Error and false teaching can be found on every side from any number of directions. (laughs) New Testament says from inside or from outside. This could look like a slackness or laziness toward truth, failing to train yourself to be godly. Well, a slackness or laziness towards truth is certainly a danger that some churches face. I don't think it's the danger that we currently face at Risen King. Eh, It's not just reaching, pat ourselves on the back, let's move on to the next point. Hear this. I think not keeping a close watch on the teaching could also look like a persistent suspicion or nitpicking of theological over-precision. See, that's also a danger, just like as so many errors that we talked about last week. You know, it's not just stay as far away from this as possible, and then I'm just safe by default. We're talking about maintaining a path of faithfulness with dangerous ditches on either side. Are we, are we, you know, there's, I've mentioned before, like in councils and statements and creeds, the, the prepositions were argued over, and that was valuable. But if somebody misspeaks, are we going to condemn them as a heretic? Are we going to allow for things to be spoken without precision? Not from the pulpit as if what I'm saying doesn't matter, but just in normal conversations. Oh, knew it. Knew they were a heretic. Just been waiting. I think this might be more of a danger for us, and we need to keep a close watch on our teaching, the teaching from the pulpit and our interactions and our beliefs with each other. That we both maintain precision for the glory of God, holding his word highly, and also allow for growth among the body. We're not all perfectly trained. None of us are perfectly trained in doctrine and in teaching. And here's another point that goes along with that. All Christians do need to agree with the Bible. All Christians don't need to agree with us. To avoid errors of every kind, blatant anti-Christian false teaching and subtle, tricky undermining of truth, we all, especially we elders, must keep a close watch on the teaching. And keeping that close watch speaks of maintaining control over or a grasp on, being especially observant, taking pains with or fixing our attention on something, like a guard or watchman looking out for the safety of a city. I mean, if you think of your, your child in your backyard with your fence, your kids versus wandering around in a mall in a strange city filled with people or a crowd, like which, what's the close watch? Well, maybe some of you would be like, equal, equally close watch. Sounds like a helicopter parent to me. But in the crowd, like, Daddy, why are you holding my hand so tight? Because you're not going anywhere. I didn't want to go anywhere. I don't care what anybody wants. Like, I got a death grip on both hands. Leon has that. We're not, we're not losing a child in this scenario. It's the, that kind of a close watch because there is a danger, the potential for that, or there could be, and we want to guard against those things. That's a close watch that needs to take place. An evaluation of an elder's faithfulness, right? Success is faithfulness, so we want to strive for and evaluate an elder's ministry by faithfulness. An evaluation that starts by considering his responsibilities, but it doesn't stop there. Like with the qualifications for eldership, attention must also be given to his life. 
evaluating an elder's faithfulness by his life. Verse 12, Paul gets to this point. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believer as an example in, he gives five categories, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. This is a really interesting command. We actually don't do commands like this in English. Other languages can do things that our language can't do. We don't need to get into that right now, but it's just an interesting fact. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's directing his command toward Timothy, but he's also not directing the command toward Timothy. It's like he's writing to him and commanding him, but not commanding him about him, commanding him about somebody else. May have confused you, that's fine. See, Paul is not writing to the church telling them not to despise Timothy. He's telling Timothy not to be despised. You see that? Let no one despise you. It's like, well, I can't get into their heads, into their hearts. I can't make them. I can't change their their behavior. What, What does this mean? I think we could rephrase this as, Timothy, don't give anyone reason to look down on you or to despise you. You could say, as an elder, don't act with spiritual immaturity and use your age as an excuse. That's what he's saying here. Youth does not mean that Timothy was a teenager. Some scholars have demonstrated that this term could describe anyone under 40. And many speculate that Timothy was in his mid-30s, which I find particularly helpful because I'm in my mid-30s. So as I look at this book, it just sort of feel like it's written to me. This even helps. Like, boy, me and Timothy, we're, we're one. I like that Timothy too, but that's not who we're writing about. <clears throat> I keep looking over when I'm saying, <laughs> like, stop saying my name. That happens every time. It's like Peter, I remember Jason McClanahan being here and talking about the apostle Peter. It's like, and Peter said, I was like, what did I say? It's like, oh, wait, no, that's not me. When I first read this command, don't let anyone despise you or look down on you. Let no one despise you for your youth. I first get an image of my mind of someone in a position of authority. It could be a parent or a teacher, a babysitter or an army sergeant, whoever. And they're, they're red-faced and they're stomping their foot and they're screaming, demanding that everyone respect them. It's just like, buddy, if it's gotten to that point, respect is long gone. Like nobody respects somebody who's standing there stomping their foot demanding it. You let it get to that point, you may be obeyed, but it won't be out of respect. You've already given them reason to look down on you. Respect can't be demanded. It has to be earned and it can be lost. And it's earned through the evaluation of their life. The point for Timothy to take away is this. Don't live in such a way as to give those you are leading a reason to despise you. Like, oh, Timothy, what do you expect of somebody who's only 36 years old? And he's like, yep, what do you expect? Don't give them a reason to do this. But how is he to avoid this? Let no one despise you, but... What's he do instead? But set the exam- believers an example. So he avoids them despising him by being an example to the believers, an example of spiritual maturity, an example of godliness. And thankfully, Paul demonstrates what that looks like. Maturity demonstrated in areas like, and we see it right here in the text, verse 12. First, in speech, does, does this one who's serving as an elder, regardless of his age, does he speak the truth? As in, is he, is he known as lying 
Or is his word trustworthy? Does he speak with respect about those that he's leading? Those who have authority over him in any number of spheres of life? Those that serve alongside of him? Does he speak with respect even about his enemies? As Christ did. Does he demonstrate self-control in what he says? Somebody can't keep their mouth shut about certain sensitive areas. You don't want him serving as an elder. You don't have the maturity to keep your mouth shut, to keep private information private as appropriate, right? I'm not talking about illegal information. We're talking just about sensitive things that you come and talked about. If he has no reputation of keeping his mouth shut, don't share the information. And if that's the case, don't let him serve as an elder. Other ways that in speech we can demonstrate spiritual maturity reminds me of Ephesians 5, written not to pastors, but just to believers, says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. The mouth of an elder is going to be a spring of water pouring out God's word. He cannot muddy the waters with lies and cursing and crudeness. An example in his life set in speech, also in conduct. We've already discussed the qualifications for elders point to specific areas where an elder's godliness should be displaying itself. You can't just be like, oh, he's godly. You have to say, where? Where does that demonstrate it? Show me his godliness as a husband in his faithfulness to his wife. Show me that godliness as a father, how he manages his household. Let that godliness be seen in how he acts as a son. How does he respect those who are over him? How does he, has he shown himself to be godly in his work, a good reputation even with outsiders? Has he shown himself to be godly, spiritually mature as a neighbor in his conduct? Also in his love, scriptures regularly point to the importance of love and how often do we need to speak about these things. Well, it's a primary command. Love primarily, ultimately, it's love for who? First and greatest commandment, love God. Then secondarily, subsequently, we have love for our neighbor. Elders must possess this affection and reverence and gratitude toward God, and they must act with patience and mercy and tangible compassion for those who are around them acting as an example in love, also in faith. How can, an, how can a elder encourage or be an example to believers if he is not a believer himself? Believer, belief, faith, trust, synonyms, right? So how can he be an example to believers if he's not living out his own belief? An elder must be an example of faith, trusting in God, having confidence in God's promises, especially during trials, and growing in these things. Throughout the Bible, faith is often coupled with repentance. That's worth mentioning here as well. Paul is not calling elders to perfection. If he was, no one would qualify. There's none perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm not sinless. That's like the first tenet Christ is perfect. I don't have my own righteousness on which to stand. Christ has righteousness that, that he has granted to me by faith. So I stand in that. We, we, that's trust. That's, that's how repentance then flows out. 
Our godliness, our spiritual maturity is demonstrated in trusting Christ's righteousness, repenting when we do sin. For example, so far, speech, conduct, love, faith, fifth, purity. An elder, Timothy, others must set a believers an example in purity. And there is, there is undoubtedly a moral sense to this purity. In the next paragraph, in chapter 5, Paul's going to use this same word to instruct Timothy as to how he should relate to the younger women in the church. Treat them like sisters with all purity. I think this goes hand in hand, accompanying the qualification of being the husband of one wife. That's not just how I treat Leanne. That's how I treat anybody else as well in faithfulness to God and to Leanne. How terrible that there are so many examples of elders ignoring this responsibility and acting in all manners of impurity. Examples that abound throughout history and throughout the news. We searched long enough. Something this week will probably pop. Of yet another elder failing to keep a close watch on himself in this area and giving cause for others to despise both them and more importantly to despise the gospel of Jesus Christ because they failed miserably to set an example in purity. This must not be for any believer, especially not for elders who represent Christ in a particular way, called to do that. All elders, especially, perhaps, perhaps especially younger elders, excuse me, all elders, perhaps especially younger elders like Timothy, all elders have a responsibility to demonstrate godliness to the believers that they are shepherding. But I do believe there's another side, right? There's, there's a responsibility that rests on me, but I think there's another side to looking at this command. An implied side for every church to consider, don't despise or reject an elder's ministry simply because of his age. Consider his life and follow the example of his godliness. Age and life experience do not guarantee biblical wisdom or spiritual maturity. Neither do they definitely prohibit them. Swing all sorts of ways. Young can't be a godly example right? And some would say it's like, oh, old and irrelevant spiritual example. We would say, no, both of those are, are false. Consider the man's life. Consider his example. Younger or older, an immature godly man is disqualified from leadership in the local church. And a mature godly man is qualified. That's not that every Older godly man is called, right? So there's a difference between a qualification and a calling to that. Verse 16 gets to this as well. As Paul's kind of bringing this together, he says, we already saw keep a close watch on the teaching. He started off by saying, keep a close watch on yourself. Paul doesn't say, you know, Timothy, I know you're busy. Lots of stuff going on. Just try to get around to these things when you get a chance. It'd be really good if you kind of thought about your, your speech patterns a little bit. You know, if, if you can, it's okay. You know, if you can get around to that purity thing, that would be excellent. 
No, keep a close watch on it. Leash that. You know, get some, get some chains. Bring that around. You know, grab firm hold. Timothy, verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. And he concludes to all these different commands as he, he's pointing his finger at Timothy. Timothy, it's command, 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 filled with imperatives. Keep a close watch on yourself. Be observant of your own life. Take pains with this. Fix your attention on it. Be a guard on the walls of your own life. Looking out for the safety of all those that you are representing and leading. And what's the danger that a faithful elder is looking out for? The lusts of his own sinful flesh. It's like the guard isn't necessarily looking outside of the city. It's like he's looking inside. It's not like, oh, which, which one of you do I need to stay away from so that I don't sin? No, it's, that's, that's no further than the mirror. It's kind of that old, it's if I'm pointing my finger out, right? Four or five fingers pointing back to myself. I don't need anything outside of me to fall into disrepute and dishonor Christ. It's all in my heart. The war against the spirit and the flesh. Keep a close watch on yourself. This wasn't just a command for Timothy. This wasn't just a problem only for younger elders as if, oh, once you get past 40 though, you're good. Elders over 40, they could never sin. That's not what it takes. Paul doesn't even just say, hey, this is a problem for you, Timothy, but I'm good. Like I've, I've advanced beyond that. That's not what he writes. He goes to 1 Corinthians 9. He says this, great, great passage. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it, the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Kind of reminds me of training to be godly, like we talked about last week. These athletes, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. We, an imperishable. Well, okay, Paul, what do you, what do you mean? What do you do? He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I'll give you an example of that, but you know, this is also being filmed and I don't want to contribute to one of those fail things. There's arms and legs everywhere. Paul says, I don't box as one beating the air. I'm not playing with this. He says, I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Can't we see ideas of close watch here? Why, Paul? Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Then when the time of my life and ministry comes to an end. And by God's grace, there would not be some headline that would pop only locally because I'm not going to be nationwide or international. I don't want it to, to think things to come to light that had been hidden in darkness that are dishonoring to Christ. Proving I was actually disqualified and that none of you should have listened to anything that I had to say from God's word because of that profound hypocrisy and hidden sin. Paul didn't want to be disqualified. Paul doesn't want Timothy to be disqualified. I don't want me to be disqualified. Paul gave examples of those who failed to keep a close watch on themselves. Our brother Keith preached on this, 1 Timothy 1. Rejecting faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. They were known to this body and he names them, Hymenaeus and Alexander. There's also the sad epithet given in 2 Timothy about another of Paul's ministry assistants. All the things that we've been saying about Timothy, all the things that could be said about Titus, other things are all, could have been applied to a man named Demas. 
And Paul, in some of the last words that he penned in scripture, said, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That has an impact on the ministry. An elder's ministry success is demonstrated, proven by faithfulness. Elder's faithfulness evaluated by considering his responsibilities, by considering his life, also evaluated by looking at the weekly gatherings of God's people for worship, gatherings that are led by elders. What priorities are seen in the gatherings of a local church? What are those priorities? What do the elders see as the vital, non-negotiable commitments that must take place each week according to God's word? As the elders will answer for these things. So we evaluate an elder's faithfulness by his responsibilities, by his life, and by the gathering. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. I mentioned this idea of devoting yourself. It's interesting, you know, the shades of meaning in a word. So it's not like a one-to-one comparison, but it is the same idea as to how an elder or deacon are not supposed to be in relationship to alcohol. Right? Don't, don't be controlled by a substance so your decisions are impaired. Don't give yourself wholly to something like this, but do give yourself wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, entirely, thoroughly, without reservation, give yourself to, I think we could say the ministry of the word, but he gives three, breaks it down into three things. First, to the public reading of scripture. Scripture, God's word, the Bible. Devote yourself to that. You can't overdo the priority of God's word in the gathering of God's people. So we seek to make that a priority uh, that fills our gatherings. We read scripture together as a body. We sing songs drawn from and filled with scriptural truths. And we hear God's word read to us as we work through now, working through Exodus, working through John. Most importantly, I think we give clear priority to the preaching of God's word. It's taking place right now, an hour and a half gathering, and you all know more than half of that is given to this, to the preaching of God's word. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a Roman Catholic mass. I went to a Catholic school and an elementary school. We had to go to mass every week, so I've been through uh, the litany of those type of things. I didn't partake because we were good Baptists. My mom was careful in that. It's like, you will not take mass and you will not pray to Mary but you will obey those nuns because you are disobedient. (laughs) Okay, yeah. In Roman Catholic churches, you know what's in the center? The altar. Beautiful piece of furniture. Depending on how much money there is in the parish, it's huge and ornate. You know what takes place? That, the mass, the re-sacrifice of Christ, not what really takes place. That's just what they're saying. That's the center. That's why you don't go to a gathering. You don't go to a church service. You go to the mass. What we would call, but it's different, the Lord's Supper. That's the primary reason the people have gathered. So the pulpit is over to the side. And while they're going to do some readings, they're going to do some other things. It's clearly not given the priority that architecture can so much communicate. What's in the center of our building? What's in the center of, what are you all pointed to? Is it the piano? Is it, is it Robbie leading worship? 
You are, you are pointed and directed, and the camera is pointed most clearly at the pulpit. You see, the reformers in the 16th century moved the pulpit from the side to the center, like literally and figuratively. Sometimes even lifted up above the people, so you couldn't miss it. Everybody could see, everybody could hear. Why did they do that? Because the reading and preaching of God's word is the central feature of Christian gatherings. The reading and preaching of God's word is the central feature of Christian gatherings. I think, I think this speaks clearly to the priority, the priority of the word, the priority that is to be seen in preaching. Not just that there should be a priority of preaching, but what is the priority in preaching? And the priority in preaching must be a declaration of God's word. If the Bible is not the central focus of preaching, it isn't preaching. This is why we give ourselves to what we call expository preaching, where we open up God's word, we read it, we explain it, we, we proclaim it. And that's the next point. Preaching isn't just advice or witty stories to entertain. Paul calls Timothy to the reading of scripture and to the exhortation. There's some great shades of meaning in this word. And I've actually just translated it as the preaching. Devote yourself, give yourself to the reading, to the preaching, to the teaching. So this word exhortation, in some senses it has to do with encouragement. Yeah, yes, you could do this. Look at the resources that you have and the, the benefits and blessings. Yes, go forth. Also, there's the shade of meaning to this exhortation as a strong request or appeal. We see that throughout preaching in scripture. Why will you die, Israel? Why would you give yourself to sin like this? You're going to endure the pleasures of sin, enjoy that for a season, and then you're going to endure the wrath of God forever? That's not a good value judgment. Turn and be saved. You deserve judgment, but there's mercy. Come, taste of mercy. A strong request or appeal, even providing comfort. I know you are heavy burdened, laden down with, with guilt and shame and unmet expectations and your own failures, Christ says, come, because his burden is easy. His yoke is light. He says, come to me. I will give you rest, not just for your bodies, rest for your souls. All of that kind of wraps up in exhortation. And one definition I read was emboldening another in belief. Here's what God's word says. You believe this, right? You understand this. It's like, go, right? Believe and go forth. Faith and repentance and obedience and joy. You can do it not because you're good enough, not because the preaching was good enough, but because God's good enough. God's word is to be applied in every situation in a believer's life. Elders are to point that out, especially the one who stands in the pulpit proclaiming God's word. Paul also refers to the teaching Public reading of scripture, exhortation, teaching. This is instruction in the faith, the good sound doctrine that we've been talking about. Preaching is not just doctrinal lectures. It's really easy to do that. <laughs> not just easy to fall into that. It's just a whole lot easier than preaching. Like here are the points of doctrine. <laughs> That's not what we're striving to do, but if it's just like, I don't want to hear any doctrine, just preach. Well, you've kind of failed at seeing that these things are not like enemies. 
your friends. It's like, what has taken place? Like, who is God? And what does he say about, about me? What does he say about my life? And what, what does he say about what Christ has accomplished? It's like, how could I exhort and encourage you if I don't outline the fact? This is like all your sins have been paid for on the cross. That's doctrine. That's, that's teaching. Right? You stand righteous before Christ and are accepted before God, not because you are good enough, but because you have, you have received that as a gift from God. So the burden has been lifted as you trusted him. Go forth in joy. That's doctrine, right? Applied. How are we to grow in godliness? What does that look like? This is all the faithfulness of teaching. All elders must be able to teach, even if they aren't called to be the one who is preaching. So this reminds us that an elder's faithfulness, not just the preaching elder's faithfulness, but all elders' faithfulness, is, is, a, is to be to the word, a priority in the public preaching and also in the private ministries of shepherding God's people. You know, brothers, as you talk to the body, to each other, to whoever, we, we have a priority of the word. And that's not just me now. It's all of us and all of our conversations in ministry. And the teaching that we share with you must be accurate from God's word. False teaching must be guarded against. This is as important in the elder's own spiritual walk as it is in all of your Walks. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Here's the point stated as clearly, as clearly as I can make it. If the elders of a church do not give priority to Scripture in their gatherings and in other ministries, they are not being faithful. If, if the elders of a church do not give priority to scripture in their gatherings and in all other ministries that happen in, through, and out of their church. They are not being faithful. That is failure. That doesn't have to look exactly like it looks here each week at Risen King. It's not like our liturgy is perfect, our organizing things. If somebody has fewer readings or fewer songs or different songs, then send them their failures. No, but is it a priority or isn't it? It's like when you go to another church, like don't, you don't have to go to another church, like don't go to another church. But when you go to another church, if the Lord moves you somewhere else, I always kind of give this simple piece of advice. If when the preaching starts, everybody finally closes their Bible and sets it underneath, like, that's a problem because people know if they're going to need it or not. Please have your Bibles open. <laughs> that's why I keep saying what the verses are. I want you to track with me on these things. It should be obvious in each Christian church that we are people of the book, people of the word, people of this truth. And it should be shown in its centrality in the gathering. All these different commands are looking at everything in the same way. Verse 15, practice these things, Timothy. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I think these things points us back to those priorities in verse 13, those gathering priorities of the reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching. I think it goes back even further to, to per practice and immerse yourself in those things in which you are to be an example, speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. These graces are evidences of maturity that Timothy is supposed to be an example. Don't just think about them. Don't just talk about them. Don't just affirm their importance. Practice them. 
Let your speech be different than it would otherwise be and your conduct and your faith and your love and your purity. Diligently work to cultivate these as priorities in your life. Well, how seriously are you supposed to do that? Paul says, immerse yourself in them. Be in them. Give yourself wholly to them. The New Living Translation connects this to verse 13 really clearly. It says, I love this, throw yourself into your tasks. Paul wants Timothy, one author said, to be all in, in the sense of fully committed and engaged. While there is danger in taking oneself too seriously, there's also the opposite error of approaching a task too casually, lacking urgency and a due sense of the task's gravity. Leanne and I have talked about this before. There are men who occupy positions of eldership, occupy pulpits, whose heads starts to heads start to grow. You gotta open the doors a little bit wider to let their big head fill in, like, oh look at me. But you know, I am so important because of this task. It's like, buddy, like maybe you need to sit down and deflate a little bit. But we've talked about that there's a there's a difference between exalting an office and holding that in respect and over-exalting a man who occupies an office. Like the men who occupy the office of elder, they're not, we're not super Christians. We've talked about this before. It's not like we're varsity and then the rest of you guys are doing something else. Like we're, we're in this together. We're not super Christians. We're not extra special. We're not, we're not the ones who should be spoken of in hushed tones and just bowed to as we walk by. In our culture specifically, in Ugandan culture, there is respect tangibly shown which is just kind of very unfamiliar to me at that point. But they have something about respect that we don't miss. Like you can overswing, be like, oh, don't have any respect for the office of elder. It's like, well, don't worship the guy, but have respect for the office. And there's a difference between those things. We're just ordinary men, but ordinary men called to an extraordinary office. And as we are qualified, called, and faithfully fulfilling that office, Elders are worthy of respect, are to be submitted to and followed. Because the office, as representing Christ, deserves respect. Respect both from those occupying it and those believers who sit under it. Just like his godly character is to be publicly exhibited and known, also his commitment to his responsibilities is to be visible. Everyone is to see his progress so that all may see your progress. Boy, I'm thankful for that word, progress. I wonder what, that, wonder what images that draws into your mind. What is, why, why does he say progress? What's the opposite of progress? Um, you have the opposite of hasn't even started yet. No, that's disqualified. See, the other opposite of progress would be arrival. Make sure everybody knows that you're the guy that you are perfect, that you are the mature one with a capital M, that you have made it and you are the example. You're the holy one. Like That's not what he says. Everyone see your progress. No elder is perfect. He is not to just be the mature one as in having arrived. He is to be maturing, growing in godliness. He will not be perfectly holy, but he must be progressing in sanctification. 
Fred and Jeremy and I sat down with uh, elder and deacon candidates and their wives yesterday for we called the, the interview after going through the different training processes. And one by one, we discussed the qualifications first, discussed some other things too. But we discussed the qualifications uh, and their understanding of the office and what they are being, that they're being considered for, asked them about their willingness to serve, seeking to follow the patterns that we've been laying out for you. And one by one, as we discussed their qualifications, looking them in the eye, looking their wife in the eye and saying like, do you meet these things? Every single one of them kind of shifted in their seat, thought carefully before he answered. Are you qualified according to 1 Timothy 3? Wow. Is that because it's kind of like, well, I know I'm terrible with money and all these different things, is that, that's not, it wasn't like, oh, maybe we shouldn't put them forward. It was a, it was a beautiful thing. It was a wonderful thing. I, I think any, it was like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm good. Like, if that had been the answer, been like, really? Like, let's, let's think about this a little bit more. Why was it a wonderful and beautiful thing? Because they aren't qualified? I would say no. I would say because they're all aware of their own sinfulness. The Holy Spirit is making them aware of the areas in which they need to grow. And so every time that I look at verse 4 of chapter 3, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I think, how am I leading my children to know and love Christ. I can't make them, but am I putting it in front of them or not? Did, am I getting lazy on a regular basis? Because it'll be just a whole lot easier to just cut dinner off and go sit on the couch or go outside or do the next thing. Well, daddy, aren't we going to pray tonight? Yeah. Yeah, we are. This is like, boy, if I'm, not, if I'm not given to that commitment in my home, how can I say I'm given to that commitment in the church? I won't pastor better than I parent. And even now, other things from this and that is convicting. The Holy Spirit makes us aware of that. And while each of these men, they have made progress in sanctification, they also recognize how far they are from the perfection of Jesus. Yet we see their progress. Ken and Gerald Jason and Glenn, we see their progress. If we didn't see their progress in that, we wouldn't be considering them for these offices. And it's not because they're perfect or they're better than some of you. Qualified, progressing, let that be seen. Why is it so important for an elder to be faithful in his responsibilities and his life and his leadership in the gathering of God's people. What fruit will come from his faithfulness? What fruit will come from his faithfulness? And Paul tells Timothy at the end of verse 16, fruit of an elder's faithfulness, persist in this. By so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy is to persist, to continue, to persevere in his commitment to each of these instructions relating to himself and to his leadership in the church. Why? To what end? By doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And that doesn't mean that any elder can by himself redeem his hearers. I cannot atone for your sins. I cannot justify you. I cannot reconcile you to God. But by the faithfulness of ministry of the gospel, by faithful ministry as an elder, 
I can point and, and lead and bring sinners to the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Not me saving you, but it's just like Christ, Christ and his word pointing you to those things, bringing them to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and by doing that, the elder is laboring that they might be saved from God's wrath and delivered from their slavery to sin. Here's the, here's the point on this. As an ordained part of God's saving plan for his people, the ministry of faithful elders is an indispensable part in their salvation and in their perseverance. To the extent that Paul can say, by so doing, by faithfully proclaiming God's word through reading and exhorting and teaching, by doing this, Timothy, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So if a church fails to point people to Christ due to negligence or worldliness or a commitment to false teaching, then those who sit there week by week, including the elders, they are in danger of falling away from Christ and making shipwreck of their faith. See, this is not a game that we're playing. Salvation is at stake in the ministry of the church and in the ministry of elders leading those churches. And what is the Christian life without the word of God being read and exhorted from and taught so that we might know and love God and cling to Christ and walk in faith and repentance? We're not saying salvation takes place by attending church or by listening to one or a thousand sermons. That's not what we mean by salvation is at stake in the ministry of the church, but it's just part of God's saving plan to bring you to Christ and bring you to maturity, which happens in the local church under the ministry of faithful elders. So fellow elders, we toil and strive for the salvation of souls to the glory of God, and our work can be nothing less. For every believer, especially elders, success in gospel ministry is not determined by numbers. How many attendees, how many converts, how many baptisms, how many missionaries sent, how much money is raised. Gospel success is gospel faithfulness. If we put the word before each other, then we are good servants of Christ Jesus. If we persevere in this task, we will save both ourselves and our hearers. And then one day, we will hear these blessed words from our God and King. Well done, good and faithful servant. Our God and Father, our King, call us to faithfulness and you are in, you're in control of the fruit of those things. Please work in me this um, passion, can we say, an obsession with faithfulness, by your grace, would I persist in these things and give myself wholly and entirely to them? Not just me, our other elders, not just our elders and deacons, our whole body. May we all set examples for each other in, in these categories. May we, may we be devoted to Scripture, to growing and to knowing you. And may you be glorified as we continue to proclaim the gospel and are, are saved. You are good. Thank you for your word. Amen.